Hi, uh, it's been a minute. Sorry about that, everyone. Uh, this is Taylor uh, speaking on behalf of of myself and Cat. Yeah, July kind of disappeared into a black hole for Square Mile of Murder, um, and I'm here to tell you why. Basically, it was a hell of a month for the two of us. Cat um, started off, you know, on a real high note. Uh, starting off with her birthday, July 4th. And then she immediately got sick and lost her voice, which was a bummer. And it meant that we couldn't record. And then as soon as Kat's voice started to come back, I managed to get COVID for the at least second, possibly third time of this whole pandemic shenanigan time period. Uh, And this time around, it really knocked me back for like a solid two weeks. I was out of work. I was just kind of not able to do anything. And um, you can probably tell my voice still sounds a little bit weird. It's a little bit rough. I cough a lot. It's not pleasant. Um, But I am just starting to feel back to slightly normal-ish. But as you might imagine, that basically means we got like nothing done for the podcast. So now we are trying to get back into the swing of things as much as humanly possible at this point. We have a plan. So basically what's going to happen is for the rest of the month of August, we are going to be releasing some previously unheard on the main feed older Patreon bonus episodes so that You guys will still have something to listen to. It'll still be something that you haven't heard before. We're doing that so that we can give ourselves a little bit of time to get caught up and um, pre-record some content that we can start releasing in September. So that's what we're going to do. And uh, we've already posted a little update on Patreon, but basically uh, we paused Patreon's August billing cycle so that our lovely patrons weren't charged uh, for another month after we gave them basically nothing uh, the previous month. So that's what's happening there. If you do sign up for Patreon in August, you will still get charged. So just be aware of that. If you don't want to get charged in August, um, don't sign up in August. You can sign up in September when we plan to resume the billing cycle. It's a whole thing. Anyway, patrons will also be getting access to separate bonus episodes that we have not released, that we have not released to lower tier patrons before. So that's our plan. Basically, everyone is getting some kind of new, new to them episode. It's just not newly recorded episodes. Um, And yeah, we are hoping to really get back into the swing of things um, as much as possible. We really appreciate everyone and anyone who has stuck with us um, through this whole thing. And um, we can't wait to start looking at more weird and, and, and wacky crimes with all of you again. So thank you so much for listening. Stick around through August to hear some some new to you episodes and we will see you with new content again in September. Thanks so much guys. Enjoy the episode. I'm Taylor. I'm Kat. And welcome to this month's Patreon bonus episode. Hello. Nice to have you here. This month we're traveling to New Orleans with an unsolved case, uh, which next month will be 102 years old. Today we're looking at the the story of the Axeman, a jazz-loving serial killer who terrorized New Orleans between May 1918 and October 1919. Because the case has gone unsolved for more than a century now, all kinds of theories and suspects have sprung up, some more viable and sensible than others, as you might imagine. (laughs) So 
let's get into it. There are 12 known victims of the Axeman of New Orleans, six who died and six who miraculously survived their injuries. And one thing we should clear up is that my pronunciation of New Orleans will change throughout because I never <laughs> know what to, how to pronounce it. New Orleans. And I just always change. And um, although this serial killer is known as the Axeman, he didn't always use an axe. And whilst the name might conjure up images of like a bogeyman type of figure stalking the streets of New Orleans after dark with an axe slung over his shoulder, that's not quite the case. And someone walking through the streets with an axe over their shoulder would draw a little bit of attention. And it may be that we are not criminally minded, but without a huge overcoat, I would imagine it's pretty difficult to disguise an axe upon your person. Yeah, or you'd have to be walking, like, really stiffly with it, like, tied to your leg or something. Yeah. It just sounds like asking for trouble. Yeah. So, yeah, instead of carrying an axe around with him, this serial killer used weapons that he found in the house or garden of his victims. And we also have to remember that this was at the end of the First World War, and the world was rapidly changing, and there was still... A lot of trust and innocence in communities, even though there was like rapid changes around this time. Yeah. People did still leave doors unlocked as well as leaving sheds, outbuildings, things like that unlocked. Not everything was tied down to make sure it wasn't stolen. Yeah. It's funny, like, we talk about some of these cases that are like over 100 years old now, and we're like, remember, people used to leave their doors unlocked and stuff. I remember when I was a kid, we used to leave our back door unlocked in a pretty, I mean, a a small town in the grand scheme of things with a population of like 15,000, but like, still. Yeah. So one question that often comes up with this case is, uh, why did so many people just have an axe lying around in their backyard or in their house, especially in the city? You know, it's not like this, these are like, farms, rural area where you might expect people to have things like an axe or a wood splitter just around. You know what I've just realized? I have a, we have a massive wood splitter just in our backyard <laughs> because it's coming up autumn. Yeah. It's time to start chopping wood. Yeah. I fucking love the big big wood splitter. <laughs> it just makes me feel strong. That's fair. Um, I don't like anyone else being near me because one day I'm going to end up axe throwing by mistake. (laughs) (laughs) Just going to fly out my hands. But I like proper massive splitter. It's really heavy. It just makes you feel strong. (laughs) Even if it's just a tiny chunk of wood that you're cutting in half. It's fine, you know. You could probably use a normal proper axe for. Yeah. But it's fine. Um, but yeah. So, even like today, uh, you know, central heating in 1918 wasn't that common. Uh, you'd really basically have open fireplaces or wood-burning stoves uh, as one of the main options to heat your home and cook your food. So it wasn't actually that uncommon for people to have an axe lying around in their backyard, even in urban areas for uh chopping wood to to burn inside yeah so the reason i included this is because i've seen so many articles youtube podcasts everything like that that talk about this case and it's like why did so many people just have an axe lying around i'm like seriously it it's 1918 yeah yeah so this also might explain why the axeman was never identified because he did not carry a weapon with him so even if he was identified and stopped by police without a weapon and in the days way before blood typing and dna testing there was little if anything to tie him to these crimes and this is another interesting thing about this case as the killer has never been identified we do not know the motivation however twisted it may be of this killer 
The victims weren't robbed of any valuables. It seems that nothing was taken from the homes of the victims as trophies. Most of the victims were either Italian immigrants or first or second generation Italian Americans. And there was a lot of xenophobia towards Italians at that time, which would continue as more and more Italian people emigrated to the United States as Benito Mussolini rose to power and led the fascist dictatorship in Italy for 21 years. But we've got 12 victims, so going on the names of the victims, which we'll get to in a bit, I think it's seven who are of Italian heritage and five who aren't. Mm -hmm. So, still a bit kind of straw clutching. Yeah. Because you've also got uh, one of the victims was suspected of being a German spy. We'll get on to that a bit more later. Um, so, there being no pattern or clear victim profile also obviously made it harder to try and make any identification because law enforcement had no clues as to who or where he might strike next and when you have an unidentified serial killer you are just playing cat and mouse you're just waiting for them to strike hoping you can catch them so with all this in mind let's move on to look at the victims so the first attack took place on the night of may 23rd 1918 possibly into the early hours of may 24th in an area of the city called Ferre, or pros- possibly Ferret, but that seems... I want to say Ferret, oh, yeah. but I think that's my dyslexia kicking yes, in. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Moving those, those E's and R's around. Um, yes, yeah, so we're in Ferre. Uh, the murderer broke into the home of Joseph Maggio and his wife Catherine, who lived in an apartment above their grocery store on the corner of Upperline and Magnolia. According to the book Unsolved Murders and Mysteries, edited by John Canning, at about 5 a.m. on May 24th, Joseph's brother Jake was awoken by groaning noises coming from the bedroom of the adjoining apartment, which belonged to his brother Joseph and sister-in-law. Jake woke his other brother Andrew, with whom he shared a bedroom, and the pair went to check on Joseph and Catherine. The couple each had their throats cut with a razor, and Catherine had dined died soon after the attack, but Joseph survived long enough to wake his brothers, uh, but unfortunately died just minutes after being found by Jake and Andrew. There was a little bit of suspicion surrounding the fact that Jake had been able to hear his brother groaning as he died, but had not heard the attack itself, which was estimated to have taken place a few hours earlier, sometime around midnight, possibly later into the early hours. But Jake claimed that he and Andrew had been out drinking the night before as he was celebrating because uh, he was uh, soon due to leave New Orleans to join the Navy. Mm-hmm. And uh, in their intoxicated state, neither of them had heard the attack, but he was just sort of in a lighter slumber when he, had, he was woken up by his brother. Uh, and the police did quickly rule him out as a suspect. Now, his brother Andrew was a barber and a couple of days before the murders he had brought home one of the razors that he used as the blade had like a little nick in it and it needed to be like smoothed out and sharpened and everything like mm-hmm. it needed sorting out basically yeah uh, and this razor was discovered to be missing after the murders and was later found on a neighbor's lawn and it was determined to be the murder weapon but After the couple had their throats cut, the killer also struck them over the head with an axe, which some believe may have been an attempt to disguise the actual manner of death. But either way, Andrew was also ruled out as a suspect, given that he also was passed out drunk. (laughs) Um, The investigation was then hindered when the detective in charge was later murdered by a man he had arrested. That's a bummer. I think the arrest was like for a different crime. I don't think it was related to this to murder. This, yeah. Just, but yeah. So. Yikes. A police investigation began, but as we know, they did not find the killer. And five weeks later, there was another attack. Louis Bessemer and his mistress, Harriet Lowe, were attacked in the early hours of June 27th. 
Uh, both of them suffered blunt force trauma, uh, and they were struck multiple times over the head with a hatchet. Like the Maggios, Louis was also a grocer, and the couple were found when a local baker attempted to deliver uh, bread to the store. Miraculously, the couple survived. I. This is one of those cases where it's like, oh yeah, or clobbered over the head with an axe or a blunt object, but we lived. Mm. Like, it, it, okay. And I, I just think it's amazing because it's like, that would be an amazing feat now with modern medicine and all the technology and yeah. you know, ambulances racing at the speed of light. But for it to have happened then, I know, is just incredible. Like, it's 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 wild, <laughs> and it'll keep happening in this case. Um, so their attack was not linked to the Magios, and police soon arrested an African-American man named Louis Ubicon, who worked in Louis, Louis's store. Ooh, that gets tricky. <laughs> um, but he was soon released due to lack of evidence. Louis told police that he remembered very little, except that his attacker was a male mulatto, which, if you don't know, is uh, a racial classification term used to describe a mixed-race person of African and European ancestry. However, the word is very outdated and considered to be offensive. So, it is the word that was used at the time, not a word you should use now, basically. <laughs> And we did talk about this yes. before recording as to whether or not we can even say it. Yeah. Like, so if we've got it wrong, we apologize. Yes. But yeah. So basically, he identified his attacker as a man of mixed race mm. and of some variety. A series of letters were discovered locked in a trunk in Louis's home written in German, Russian, and Yiddish. And this led police to suspect that he may have been a German spy, and he was arrested. Okay. I mean, that's just what this story was missing. Right? It turned out that Harriet Lowe also thought that Louis was a German spy. Her claims added to the already sensational nature of these crimes, because when it was discovered that Harriet was Louis's mistress and not his wife, the media went wild. Harriet believed that the police had been the media source, so she then vowed to stop helping the police with their investigation. That's she fair. She wasn't happy with them. Yeah. I mean, there's got to be trust on both sides. Yeah, that's true. Uh, Harriet returned to the house she shared with Louis just three weeks after the attack. So she, she shares a house with him, and he also has a wife, so I'm really not sure how this situation works. Maybe yeah. it was like a throuple mm. situation. Or like she was the nanny or something. So, yeah. Three weeks after the attack, she returns home, but half her face was still paralyzed and she required further surgery to repair the damage. Uh, in August, she underwent more surgery, but sadly died two days later on August 5th. Before she died, Harriet told police that it was Louis, a white man, not a, uh, a mixed race man, who had attacked her. Hmm. Now, Louis had quickly been released after his first arrest on suspicion of being a German spy, and two detectives were demoted for shoddy police work. <laughs> yeah. Uh, fair. Um, <laughs> following Harriet's deathbed accusations, Louis was once again arrested and spent nine months in custody before his trial in May 1919, where a jury acquitted him of Harriet's murder. Just after midnight on August 5th, 1918, the same day that Harriet died, 28-year-old Ann Schneider was attacked in her home. She was eight months pregnant when she was hit repeatedly over the head with a heavy lamp in the home and was found by her husband when he returned home from work in the early hours. Anne was rushed to the hospital, and not only did she survive, 
but two days later, she gave birth to a healthy baby girl. Which amazing. is amazing, yeah. <laughs> um, however, she remembered nothing from the attack, and the couple reported that the only thing missing from their home was 6 or $7 in cash. Uh, police quickly arrested James Gleason, a former convict, and he ran from police when they tried to arrest him, which cemented uh, the police opinion at the time that he was the attacker. But he was soon released due to a complete lack of evidence other than that he had a criminal record and had run from arresting officers. This is when the police began to publicly speculate that the attack on Ann Schneider was linked to the murders of Joseph and Catherine Maggio. Five days later, there was another attack. This time, it was Joseph Romano, who was who is described as an elderly man living with his two nieces, Pauline and Mary Bruno. Uh, he suffered blunt force trauma to the head on August 10th. Hearing the attack, the two nieces entered his room uh, in the apartment to see what was going on, and they saw the attacker fleeing the room. Uh, Joseph reportedly told his nieces to call the local charity hospital before pass passing out. He regained consciousness before the ambulance arrived, and according to some sources, was able to walk to the ambulance pretty much unaided. Wow. Sadly, though, he died from his injuries in hospital two days later. Police found a bloodied axe by the back door, where a panel had also been chiselled out of the door, which had allowed the, uh, the attacker to gain access. And this is the same as the first crime scene, the Maggio's house. There was a chiselled door panel uh, found there. That's how the killer gained entry. What was different about this attack, however, was that this time there were two witnesses who got a at least sort of half-decent look at the killer. The sisters described him as, as a heavy-set, dark-skinned man who wore a dark suit and a slouched hat. Uh, in the... It was following this attack that a sense of fear gripped the city, and in the weeks following, there were reports of an axeman lurking in the shadows all over New Orleans. Never good. A former New Orleans detective named John D'Antonio theorized at the time that the axeman may have been responsible for a series of unsolved murders in the city in 1911. He described the man as a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde type of man with a dual personality, a seemingly normal citizen who also killed at random and without motive. After the murder of Joseph Romano, the Axeman didn't strike again for seven months, possibly due to the increased media attention and speculation, as well as the increased vigilance of a city on high alert. But in March 1919, the Axeman struck again, and this time he attacked multiple victims in one night, killing one of them. Charles and Rosie Cordemilia lived in the New Orleans suburbs of Gretna, uh, south of the Mississippi River, with their two-year-old daughter, Mary. In the early hours of March 10th, a neighbor heard screams coming from the Cordemilia home, and there they found all three members of the family with severe head trauma. Charles lay bleeding on the floor, while Rosie was slumped against the doorframe, clutching her daughter's lifeless body. After being rushed to the hospital, it was discovered that the couple had skull fractures. And like the previous attack, a panel had been chiseled out of the back door and a bloodied axe belonging to the family was found resting against the doorframe. Um, but, but after regaining consciousness and leaving the hospital, Rosie was able to name their attackers. A uh, local man, Yolando Giordano, and his son, Frank. However, it was soon determined that 69-year-old Yolando wasn't, wasn't, able, uh, wasn't fit or able enough to have carried out the attacks, and his son, 18-year-old Frank, was a large man <laughs> who would not have been able to squeeze through the small gap in the door. Despite this, and with only Rosie's statement as evidence, a statement which her husband you know, vehemently denied. Uh, Yolando and Frank were arrested, charged, and eventually found guilty of the murder of Mary and the attempted murder of Charles and Rosie. Yolando was sentenced to life in prison, while Frank was sentenced to death. But a year later, when the Cortemilias divorced, Rosie confessed that she had falsely accused the father and son. According to Crime and Investigation, she did this out of spite and jealousy. 
but we don't know what prompted this spite and jealousy. <laughs> when Rosie confessed, she claimed that she had suffered for her sins. After all, her daughter had died, her husband had left her, and she had then contracted smallpox, which had left her frail and scarred. I mean... I don't think that, you know, prosecutors really accept that as a reason why you shouldn't be punished for perjury, <laughs> making a false report. You mean getting smallpox after you commit a crime is not a good mm. alibi? Apparently not. Go figure. Following the attack on the Cordemilia home while the police were beginning their investigation into the Giordanos, the Axeman himself sent a letter to newspapers in New Orleans, which was published across the city. That was kind of him. Just start a little correspondence. Yeah. You can find the letter in its full rambling nonsense on the Axeman Wikipedia page, which will be linked below. Um, but we're just going to talk about the most important parts because, like we said, rambling nonsense. Yeah. The letter was published on March 13th, 1919, and in it, the Axeman claimed that he would commit his next crime in seven days' time. But he also said that he loved jazz music, and so he would not attack a home that was blaring jazz music on that specific night. His exact words were, <clears throat> If everyone has a jazz band going, well then, so much the better for you people. One thing is certain, and that is that some of your people who do not jazz it out on that specific Tuesday night, parentheses, if there be any, close parentheses, will get the axe. Forewarned is to be forearmed. Yeah. Is that the saying? <laughs> for jazz. Uh, oh, no. A one, two, three, four. <laughs> <laughs> Although jazz isn't usually in 4 4 time, but in any case, um, I would like to petition for the phrase jazz it out to be a thing as like a verb like <laughs> um so on the wikipedia page it's got like a list of you know like um the axeman in uh popular media or popular culture mm -hmm. you know it's got various like things that appear like documentaries and stuff like that and one of them is um my favorite murder yep because they did an episode on it where i was called either jazz it or jazz it out so <laughs> Nice. We're behind the curve on this one. Ah, uh, yeah, it's it's just so good. I, I also just like it's jazz it out on that specific Tuesday night. Like, yep. Um, if I read this, I would just be like, yeah, okay. I'm just gonna have a jazz record playing in my house always now, mm. forever, very loudly, forever. <laughs> Uh, yeah. So, this leads us to one of the strangest motivations people have proffered for the murders, and that is that the Axeman wanted to increase the popularity of jazz music, so he essentially threatened the population of New Orleans that if they didn't listen to jazz music, he would kill again. So, nowadays, New Orleans is one of the places we like instantly associate with jazz music but back in 1919 it was still very much in its infancy although according to an article by open culture it was rapidly evolving due to the city being a, this melting pot of cultures you had african-american people jewish people creole people and of course because where don't we get to <laughs> white people in this newly like unsegregated city and so jazz was the music for this like new, young, free generation. But was widely hated by the older generations, as every generation hates the next generation's music. Yeah. My grandparents hated my parents' music. My parents hated our music. Yep, pretty much. We, we do not have offspring, so don't know if we'll hate their music. I know. I quite like some well, of this Gen Z music nonsense that's been coming out, but I don't really listen to a lot of it, so. I like some of it, like, 
because I like to listen to dance music when I work out. Mm. Um, so I, because I'm a dinosaur, like just go through YouTube and just find like different songs and stuff. I don't even use Spotify. That's how much I hate technology. Um, and so some of it I really like, and then some of it I'm like, huh, what is this? Yeah, some of the like, like dance music, I'm just like, this is not music really noise yeah it's just like like sounds yeah like take me back to like early 2000s you know pop punk new metal oh i mean no thank you but to each their own exactly (laughs) uh the writer of this letter also indicates that he may not be a resident of new orleans claiming that he could visit every night if he wanted to and that he could kill thousands if he wanted to. So, he could have lived very near the city or visited the city on a regular basis for, you know, whatever reason. Or he could have been a resident of the city with, like, dual personalities Mm. as, or dual or multiple personalities, as former detective uh, D'Antonio believed him to be and was referring to his other personality, you know, like the murderer, uh, you know, as the one who could visit the city every night if he wanted to. Yeah. Uh, The following Tuesday rolled around, and the city's dance halls were fit to burst. Bands played at house parties, people crowded crowded around gramophones. But whoever the Axeman was, a local, someone from out of town, he did not show up on the following Tuesday. Nobody was murdered. Which is good. Yeah, great <laughs> development. <laughs> and there were no more communications from the killer, and the people of New Orleans thought they were safe once again. That's a big risk to take, though. I'd still just keep that record going if I were them. <laughs> uh, Louis Bessemer was in custody, waiting trial, and the Giordanos were soon arrested and then went to trial. So within a few months of the last attack... Life in New Orleans was pretty much back to normal, and people felt safe again. The Axeman murders kind of took on a similar cultural position to the Jack the Ripper murders in Whitechapel in 1888. People were fascinated by the crimes, and although the Giordanos were awaiting trial for the attack on the Cortemilla family, they weren't, as far as we can find, charged with the rest of the Axeman murders nor did either of them fit the description of the man Joseph Romano's nieces had given. Uh, The killings had stopped, but the identity of the murderer was still a mystery, and that continued to fascinate the general public and law enforcement officers alike. There was even a song called The Mysterious Axeman's Jazz, parentheses, Don't Scare Me, Papa. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yes, so the... The Mysterious Axeman's Jazz Don't Scare Me, Papa was written by a local composer called Joseph John Davia or Davila. Either. Or. Um, Some have even posited that Davila could have been the killer because he made a lot of money from sales of the sheet music for the song and that the song was written and published almost immediately after the Axeman sent his letter to the city's newspapers. No. If you've been keeping count, you will have realized that at the beginning we said there were 12 victims of the Axeman. So far, we have only mentioned nine. Five who died and four who survived. Well, this is because, unfortunately, the night of jazz music in March was not the end of the killings. There was a period of quiet in New Orleans, but the Axeman returned in the summer, and between August and October, he attacked his final three victims. On August 10th, 1990, Steve Boker, a grocer, was attacked in his bed by an axe-wielding intruder. After being struck on the head with an axe, Steve passed out, and when he regained consciousness, he was able to walk to his neighbour's house, where he once again collapsed and fell into unconsciousness. He was rushed into hospital, where it was discovered that he had a skull fracture. No surprise. Yeah. (laughs) I mean getting clocked with an axe. That'll do it, I tell you. But despite that, he survived and fully recovered from the attack. But he was not able to record 
Ricard. He was not able to recall anything about his attack other than seeing a large man with an axe standing over him seconds before striking him. That's fair too. Like in previous attacks, a panel had been chiseled out of the door, but nothing had been taken from the house during the attack. Three weeks after the attack on Steve Boca on September 3rd, 19-year-old Sarah Lauman was attacked in her home. Neighbors were checking in on Sarah, who lived alone, when they found her unconscious in her bed. She had been struck on the head, and some of her teeth had been broken. Unlike the other attacks, the intruder entered her home through an open window and used a hatchet to attack Sarah, which was found on the lawn underneath the open window. Like Steve Boca, Sarah made a full recovery from her attack and was unable to remember anything about it. Now, some have disputed whether or not Sarah was a victim of the original Axeman or possibly a copycat Axeman because the intruder came in through the window rather than chiseling a panel out of the door uh, like the other attacks. The final attack came on October 27th when Mike Pepitone was killed in his... I think it's Pepitone. Yeah, I think it is too. The final attack came on October 27th when Mike Pepitone was killed in his own home. Uh, his wife awoke just in time to see a large axe-wielding man fleeing the room and her husband lying in his own blood. Which is not something you want to wake up to. No. Ever. Uh, the Pepitonis had six children who were uh, woken up by their mother's screams, and they then called the police. And the police found a panel missing from the front door, and a bloody axe was found on the porch. Mike Pepitoni was the final confirmed or canonical victim of the Axeman of New Orleans. Now, as we've said, the Axeman has never been identified, and there have been a few suspects over the years. Some strange and a bit far-fetched, like the idea that composer Joseph John DeVere committed the crimes so that he could profit from his song, The Mysterious Axeman's Jazz. Don't scare me, Papa. Papa. <laughs> um, another theory was that because the majority of the victims, so we think seven, were of Italian heritage, uh, based on our limited knowledge about Italian names <laughs> so yeah we think there were seven uh, victims who were of italian heritage some believe that there was a mafia connection rather than a xenophobic motivation for the killings an italian american resident of new orleans joseph mumfrey was identified by pepitone's widow as the axeman and we have to refer to her simply as pepitone's widow because we don't know her name <laughs> Like, she's not named in any source. It's just his widow. <laughs> Jesus. So in December 1920, just five days before Rosie Cotamelia confessed that she had falsely accused the Giordanos of killing her daughter and attempting to kill herself and her husband, uh, Mrs. Pepitone allegedly shot and killed Joseph Mumfrey in LA. And I say allegedly for a very important reason. <laughs> This one's wild. Um, although the shooting death of Joseph Mumphrey has been widely reported in true crime circles, more recent investigations into the Axeman have failed to find any reports of the shooting death of a man named Joseph Mumphrey or a variation of this name in Los Angeles in December 1920. Nor has anyone been able to uncover any documentation in the U.S to prove that this man ever existed to start with, which has led some to believe that this man is purely an urban legend that has sprung up around the legend of the Axeman of New Orleans. However, there was an Italian-American man known to use the alias Leon Joseph Momfrey, who broke into a house in New Orleans' Lower Ninth Ward in 1912 and shot the couple who lived there, who were Italian immigrants. So it is possible that he could have been the Axeman and that his MO changed in the six years between the shooting and the first confirmed Axeman murders of Joseph and Catherine Maggio. Yeah, but in this, uh, this man who used the alias Leon Joseph Mumphrey uh, didn't die in 1920. Yeah. He died in 1922, so... Yeah, so a little, little funky. Yeah, but it is, it is weird that 
there's just like this whole person. Yeah. Just like who's been invented. Yeah, made up completely. Uh, another theory, according to Crime Investigation, is that the Black Hand were responsible for the murders. So, Crime Investigation described the Black Hand as an early form of the Mafia, but the Mafia was already well established in the USA by this time, mm-hmm. and according to Wikipedia, the American Mafia was established in 1869. Mm-hmm. So, don't know if they like coexisted at the same time? Possibly, yeah. Um... It's kind of conflicting descriptions of them, <laughs> of what the Black Hand is. But it was essentially an extortion racket run by American uh, Italian-American criminal syndicates. Possibly the actual mafia as well. Yeah. But this theory once again falls short because not all the victims were of Italian heritage. Or had any connection to Italian-American organised crime. Added to this is the fact that the Black Hand allegedly... Uh, their extortion tactics began with letters making demands and there were no reports of letters being sent to any of the victims or their families. However, there is another theory, as you might have guessed, that some of the murders and attacks were carried out by copycats, which could give credence to the theory that the Mafia or Black Hand were behind the attacks on the Italian victims and the copycats were responsible for the others. And the copycat theory is literally based on the fact that not all the murders followed the exact same MO. Like Sarah, um, was it Lauman? Yeah. Like her intruder climbed in through a window. You know, things like that. Yeah. Um, but we know that serial killers evolve over time and they do change. The MO sometimes, like, sometimes out of necessity, sometimes for other reasons yeah. but they don't always follow the exact same pattern to the letter yeah that's no, true the final suspect touted as possibly being responsible for the murders is some kind of demon or unholy spirit no yes absolutely not yes no yes no and that's the story of the Axeman of New Orleans <laughs> thoughts everyone <laughs> ghosts that's my thoughts jazz ghost (laughs) jazz hand ghost he has a little hat and a clarinet like benny goodman i do not believe there's any kind of like supernatural entity to this crime um because right firstly if it was a ghost, why would it need to ch- chisel a panel out of the door to get in? You could just fly down the ch- You got me there. You could just go through the wall. Just yeah, but if it's got sh- the axe mm. from outside. Mm. Yeah, okay. But yeah, so... Um, I don't know. What, what are your thoughts? I think that the letter was written by someone else, not the killer. That just wanted to (laughs) fuck with everyone for the night and have, like, just to laugh their ass off at everyone just blaring music out of their houses all through the night. Like, my parents wouldn't let me have a house party, so I'm going to take take drastic action. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to have a city party. (laughs) Um, And I have no clue who it could possibly Mm be. It's interesting because in the episode we did on the Hinterkaifeck murders, we talk about the man from the train theory a little bit, um, mm. which are axe murders, for lack of a better term, generally speaking, like the murders that are mm. tied up and all that. However, these set of murder, this set of murders in New Orleans is considered to not be a part of that theory. Yeah. Which I think is interesting. Um, I, and because of that, I have no theories. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's a weird one. Yeah. Um, see, in my notes, I put racism slash xenophobia towards Italians and a question mark, and I can't remember (laughs) why, like, what thoughts I had to add to that. I mean, it's definitely true that, yeah, at that time... That was a huge mm. problem. 
in the United States, yeah. just like uh, over, uh, you know, various periods of time, mass discrimination against Irish immigrants or Chinese immigrants or, you know, any number yeah. of Jewish immigrants, Eastern European groups, Middle East, Middle East, like, at, like from, you know, in the United States, the beginning of the United States onward. And, yeah. and it, you know, different cities and places had different concentrations of various immigrant groups. Yeah, and, and we had the same thing in the UK with, uh, especially in the 1840s and 50s onwards with uh, Irish yeah. immigrants because of the, the potato famine. famine. Yeah. If all of them... Yeah were Italians or of Italian heritage. Yes. I could see that. Maybe that would be believable. Um, but then you've also got the other theory that it was the mafia. Well, that's not racism or xenophobia. That's that's almost like leave them to sort it out themselves kind of thing. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I just... And I also feel like there would be... If it was like a racially motivated crime it would be more obvious i feel like so, like there would be some indication of like that's why i'm killing these people yeah but especially like if it's a big if if the note is the letter is genuine yeah why wouldn't he say it in there yeah so um. i it feels to me way more like a just a killer like a, a serial killer almost now how far apart were the first few crimes a few weeks okay i was gonna say a spree killer but that's too far apart for that yeah it just sounds like a serial killer who maybe then left town for a little while and then came back mm. but after the attacks on the uh Cotamiglia family Cotamiglia family you've then got no sorry between um Joseph Romano and the Cotamiglia family you've then got nearly 9 months yeah so it's august 1918 to march 1990 so I wonder if he was in jail could have been it's all kinds of things could have happened. Yeah. There was, I like guess, the, the end of the First World War, but there was American involvement in the First World War. Oh, yeah. Very, very limited, especially compared to the Second World War, yeah. but there was, you know, that could have played a part in it. I'm sure there were many domestic events mm -hmm. in that period as well that, you know, I have no idea about because I'm not American. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I think it's one of those things. It's like, especially because all the descriptions are so different. Yeah. It's just like, oh. it could all be the same person, could be separate people taking advantage of this recurring mm. crime. But yeah, I have no idea and how you figure it out now. Oh, no. And I know I sound like a broken record because I say this all the time. We group crimes together that shouldn't necessarily be grouped together because we don't like the thought of there being two serial killers on the loose when there could just be one. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting because the same could be said in the opposite direction of like the connection between these very similar crimes have never been made. But in this instance, I could totally get people arguing like, well, actually, they probably weren't the same killer. Yeah, I mean. So chiseling a panel out of a door was that an e if that was an easy way to break into a house yeah but that does seem very specific like he didn't break yeah. the door he didn't break a window he took the time mm. to just like mm. it seems very opportunistic to me as well because absolutely you have to well you're you're essentially picking people and hoping that you can find a weapon. A weapon. 
whether it's something in the garden or something in the house. That that oh. idea of D'Antonio, like his theory actually really fits in well with that of like a, a sort of multiple personality or someone with a sort of fractured mental state that kills indiscriminately and randomly. Like they're yeah. crimes of opportunities. They're potentially crimes of, you know, madness for lack of a better term. Mm. So I could see that. Yeah. Yeah. Well. But again, we haven't solved no, it. No, but now we all have to go jazz it up. No, jazz, jazz it, it out. out. Oh, God, I'm so sorry. Jazz it you out. You wanted to make it a thing and you got I know, it wrong. I screwed it up. Yes. I should go jazz it out to condone. Condone? Yeah. Atone. <laughs> words. No, no more words. Yeah. Goodbye. <laughs> um. So if you have watched American Horror Story Coven, which is a third series, which personally I did not like. I, that's like the only... Well, no. I watched it. It was fine. But yeah, in Coven, which is set in New Orleans, the Axeman makes an appearance. He is... I think he's the son of like a very wealthy family. Um, the episode is literally called "The Axeman Cometh." Oh yeah, I kind of remember that. So, yes, yeah, so the witches in the present um, trying to make contact with spirits to, oh, the spirit of the legendary killer, the Axeman. Um, but as far as I know, like the identity he's given. Mm -hmm. Is completely invented. One is like no link to any like real person. Yeah. yeah. Um. But yeah. So that's sort of a notable appearance in popular culture. Yeah, there you go. That is the Axe Man. Yeah. Uh, Let us know your thoughts. Who do you think did it? And um, what what songs are you gonna jazz it out to? <laughs> little, little Louis Armstrong, little Benny Goodman, little I, I have a personal uh affection for Dexter Gordon. So Oh, we'll see. As I previously mentioned, I'm going back to like early two thousands pop punk and new metal. Uh wouldn't really call those so I'm sorry jazzy I'm so much. Yeah, so I'm sorry I'm out of this <laughs> this round of questions. Uh, all right. Well someone out there will Hear my plea. <laughs> yeah, thank you for listening. Let us know your thoughts. Yeah. Who you think did it. Um, and uh, we will see you next week with a new episode. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye.